as soon as you hear the booze, I mean, it makes it unbelievably tougher. Why is it so easy uh, to face Jake Beer and Sevier? And then I look up at the scoreboard and I saw all the zeros and I was like, oh man. Welcome to another episode of Digging In with Jake Beer and Sevier. I'm your host as always, Nick Ashbourne, and today we have on the podcast Clay Buckholtz, the latest addition to the Blue Jays rotation. I think he's a really exciting guy to talk to because you just look at the resume and he's done everything. You know, he's thrown a no-hitter, he's won the World Series, he's been an all-star a couple times, and then more recently, you know, he's signed a minor league deal and fought his way up to a major league team and pitched well. You know, he signed late in this in this offseason as well. He's fought through countless injuries. He's a guy who He's seen the mountaintop, and he's also seen, you know, some darker times as well. And I think that's why he has the possibility to give us such a good perspective. He's one of those guys that is a is going to be a sneaky good sign for the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, you know, you've been able to watch him with the other players, the young players, being able to give him some tips. Uh, this guy was one of the best pitchers in the game while he was, you know, on his run. I remember every time he'd come to Toronto, he'd kind of stick it on us. So I'm, I'm excited to ask him uh, if he wanted to come to Toronto because he knew that he really pitched well uh, in Toronto. And, you know, again, this is a guy who's had a very storied career and can only bring value to a team that, that needs to have that veteran presence. As recently as last year as well, he was really good for the Dimebacks until he ran into injury. I mean, you know, ERA isn't the be-all, end-all, but his was one of the very best in the league. He was keeping runs off the board, giving his team, which was trying to compete, a chance every night. And, you know, so far he went up against a good raised lineup and he gave the Blue Jays a chance again in a game that they ultimately won. So maybe he, you know, we kind of cynically say this about a lot of the veterans on one-year deal. Maybe he's someone who's building trade value for this team. But uh, like you said as well, he's going to benefit some of the young players he's around. Now, as of this recording, uh, the most recent Blue Jays game was a win, a, a bit of an uplifting one after a brace running blunder, Tusker Hernandez hitting the home run, and they opened that series with a win against the Twins. But for me, the biggest story in Blue Jays land right now has to be Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And JP, I think that uh, you have a good way of looking at this probably because you've been relatively open about times in your career where things happening between the ears, if you will, were preventing you from putting on your best performance. So what do you see with Gurriel right now and what do you see as a path forward for him? Well, what I see is a, is obviously somebody who is going through a little bit of a mental funk you know, this is a, a game that's really, really tough mentally and will be able to expose you at the highest level. And the tough part is, is in the major leagues, why guys get sent down is because the eyeballs are different, right? In the major leagues, all of a sudden you make a mistake, you make another mistake, you're all over ESPN, you're all over the, the reporters are all over you. So you really don't have any chance to get a blow necessarily uh, from the stress. But you go down to the minor leagues and you're able to fix it. My biggest thing is, it happens to players who switch positions. And, you know, if that's one thing for me, he was a shortstop. Right? You come up as a shortstop, and I know he's played second base, but he was a shortstop. All of a sudden, that is a completely different throw. I mean, honestly, you might say, like, well, you're still throwing a baseball. No, it's a different arm angle. It's a different speed you have to throw. It's just not the same style of throw. And so now, you know, at second base, he's having these issues. The good thing is is that many people have had these issues and they get fixed and they're able to come back and that's something that I think will happen. And you know, you want to believe that it will happen. The other positive is that 
you know, a lot of guys, whoever, if they ever have any kind of throwing issues in the infield, they just move them to the outfield. Now, will Guriel be a serviceable outfield in the major leagues if he can hit? Be one thing. But that's that's another thing that happens throughout careers is guys that get throwing funks, then they push them to the outfield because it's you don't ever really see a guy with a throwing issue in the outfield because they're just letting it fly at They're just throwing it as hard as they can into the infield most of the time. Infield throws are very touch-oriented. You have to have you know the field, different arm angles, and that's where guys get into trouble. So I'm, I'm hoping that this is something that he'll be able to go down to AAA and there'll, there'll be guys, I'm sure there'll be sports psychologists along with baseball guys that are trying to help him and get him into a good place. I think you touched on it a little bit, and the question has sort of emerged is, does Guriel need to focus on one position? Is he getting a little bit in his head because he has so many different things to worry about. You know, we kind of jokingly did the over-under for how many positions he's going to play at the beginning of the year, and he ended up playing a little bit of first base as well. It looks like that would probably go over. Is it, and is it something where maybe if he settles in at one position, he can really kind of hammer out these issues? And for me, second base looks like, as far as the Blue Jays' future and how it projects, to be the best position for him. Like Devin Travis at this point is hard uh, to pencil in really for the future. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, Bichette we know is probably the shortstop of the immediate future. Maybe there's a spot at third base for him if Vladdy moves to first, but I know they're going to try Vladdy at at third for as long as they possibly can. The outfield is tough because if you're not playing center field, you really have to hit to justify a corner outfield spot. And I don't, I know that I've been more skeptical of his bat than a lot of people. I've had arguments with you about it. I've had arguments with our producer, Zoobs, about it. I'm a little bit more skeptical about his bat. So I'm thinking this guy should probably just be a second baseman, which is a weird thing to say the moment that he has had all these troubles throwing from second base, obviously. But it's I I find it hard to believe that he's not going to get past this and I know he's a good enough athlete to man that position maybe never to be truly elite at it but you have to believe that he's going to get past this well you know here here's the thing right one thing you have to think about this guy's background this guy you know defected from Cuba to get to the major leagues right so you're, you're talking about mental toughness this guy's been through the ringer living in that country and and the way that he had to live in it and so there's no doubt that this guy's uh, he's very tough mentally. I think that, you know, you get here and sometimes things happen and you have to learn. And I think he's going to learn. You know, you say jokingly that we did talk about those positions and we did, but here's where a time where it's going to affect somebody. It really does. When you move around that many times, some guys are really good about it, right? Ben Zobris, you can put him anywhere. You know, Javi Baez, some of these guys can do it and never even, you know, bat an eye. Some guys, it really messes with them, and there are different throwing techniques. You throw different from third base, from shortstop, and from second base, and specifically second base is a lot different of a throw than shortstop and third. And so that's something that I think, like you said, I do believe that they have to go, hey, you know, maybe we have wear a little bit of the responsibility for moving this guy around. You you never really can blame yourself because you don't know when something like that is going to happen, right? You can't expect somebody to have a throwing funk. But that's something where I think they need to go down there and go, listen, you, you're, you're right at this. They need to say, hey, second base is where you're going to be, and let's get you right, and you'll be fine, and just have a good support system, and he will be back. Because I do think value-wise, 
you know, that's where I was saying you push them in the outfield. I don't know if you get the same value. So for me, that is something that they have to do. And I think, you know, with Charlie Montoyo and the way they did it, I, I actually like it. I like that they took him out of the game. I, I think the more he was out there, the more things start going. Anxiety works in that sense. You have a little bit of an issue and all of a sudden it gets out of control. And I think that being able to go out there, nip it in the bud, you know, pull him off and get him, get him out is better because what happens if he would have gotten two or three more balls that game, now all of a sudden he gets so bad that he may not be ever get back from it. You know what I'm saying? So I think they did a really good job of being able to pull him and let him, you know, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to take you out and get him to a little bit more of a clearer mind. Yeah, and, it, like, who knows what his next at bat would have looked like, for instance. And Ben Zobris is funny because, as an example that you bring up, because it's an example that everyone brings up because he was so successful doing that. But the reason why everyone brings up that example is because he's a little bit unique. He's not the first guy to do it, but in the kind of current era, he's the best at doing this. It's like, oh, we can have the next Ben Zobrist. Well, maybe there's a reason why only Ben Zobrist was able to do this as well as he did it, you know? Just because one guy does it, it doesn't mean that everyone is wired the same way to do that thing. So I wanted to kind of circle back on Guriel's mindset a bit. And like I mentioned, you had some times where you had nothing quite as you know overt and dramatic as this in a sense. But how do you dig yourself out of that? Because I know that you've had some moments where you're really down on yourself. And then you know later in your career, had moments where you were where you kind of got back up. How do you see Guriel digging himself out of this hole? One, you have to get really vulnerable. I think you have to be able to go out there and say, okay, and speak openly about what's bothering you, right? You know, there's going to be a sports psychologist that's going to be there. There's going to be different coaches that are going to be there. And he has to really say, hey, this is what I'm thinking when I'm, you know, throwing the ball to first base. These are the thoughts that come to my head. Because when you start to learn about the core of what's going on, it allows you to kind of get past it and to learn Okay, so this is what's going on, but this is this isn't reality. So my my brain is just kind of telling me one thing, but this isn't the reality of things. And so that's what I think the first step is: is really just going, "Hey, man, here it is." Like put the pride aside, put the tough guy aside, and go. You know what? When the ball comes my way, my heart starts racing, and I really get scared that I'm gonna throw it away. All right, cool. So once you get to that kind of vulnerability, then I think you can really help yourself and get to be able to be back to being normal again. And then it comes down to just work and work and work. And that's a good thing about the minor leagues is you'll be able to do things. You can get there at nine in the morning if you want and work. I mean, you can do work as hard as you want. There's not going to be a ton of eyes there. He'll be able to work on their low stress, you know, times. And so, I, I mean, again, I think that's the biggest thing though. Mentality wise, you need to learn about what's going on and be vulnerable. And I think once you're, get to that state, you'll be able to make the mental adjustments and then be able to continue them physically. Cause I think, man, that had, I mean, and I didn't have a throwing funk, but the, you know, the anxiousness and all the stuff that I went through when I was struggling, I mean, it's, you really have to, you know, attack what's going on. And that's really what's in between the years first, because once you get that right, then all the other things go back to normal because you're physically talented. It's just that that brain is so powerful. And as we're seeing, you know, one of the best players on the planet, right? Because if you're a major league player, you're one of the best on the planet. Even that person can have those kind of issues and then all of a sudden 
go from making an easy throw to making it really, really tough. So, I mean, that's the number one thing is, is what's going on in between the years and really facing it. And before we move on to Clay, which I'm looking forward to do, I, I do want to touch a little bit on, you know, having some sympathy for this guy because I think that there's a lot of fans out there and the first inclination is to is to laugh or be like, oh my God, or think I can make that throw. Like, how is it possible that this chump can't do it? And I understand that first instinct because I know when I saw the, the that throw, my first thing that went through my head was like, I can't believe that. I, like, I, that's a throw that... Like I personally would have made, and I, you know, yeah, second you're base, a dodgeball, se- big dodgeball guy. That's an easy big throw dodgeball for you. star, and second base is my natural softball position. Um, no, but I, I know that that part of the brain is very accessible. But I think it's also important to think about a guy. You know, even professional athletes are sometimes hard to empathize with because of the money they make and the lifestyle they live. It's a different lifestyle. But this is a guy who's going through I mean you could probably categorize it as some kind of mental health struggle and so 100 percent. and so I think it's important for people at home who see that even if it seems a little bit comical a little bit ridiculous at times to take a step back and think this is a human being going through a tough time and let's kind of pull for this guy to figure it out because you know a lot of us in our lives have had times where we've had self-doubt or anxiety and it's really affected what we've been able to do. And he's just another person going through that in a more public way. Well, and, they, and I mean, even to take it further than just at home, I think fans in the stadium need to understand that that's not a time to boo. And that's not a time to, you know, this is something, a physical error is a physical error. And I know it's counted as a physical error, but this is what's going on right now is a mental funk. And, you know, as soon as, as a person who went through it, as soon as you hear the boos, it... It ex- I mean, it makes it unbelievably tougher to be able to make the adjustment and to get where you need to get. And so, you know, uh, I'm thankful again why they pulled him out was be able to get him out of the line of fire, uh, in essence, so that he didn't have to really take the brunt of it if he had two or three errors that game. And then all of a sudden now the booze come and then all of a- now he's spinning out of control. So again, fans, you really do have an opportunity to make sure in the stadium as well to understand like, Hey man, this guy's going through not an easy thing. And so let's try to keep it from, uh, you know, making it worse. Now we're going to be joined by veteran starter, Clay Buckholtz. This is one of my nemesis. I know we'll, Nick will touch on this later that I never got a hit off of him in my career. So we'll talk about that after, but, um, for now, you know, talk about where you are in your career because, you know, the other day I'm watching the, you know, you teach Trent Thornton, you know, different grips and talking to the young guys. And, and you were once that, you know, that prospect in that seat and that young guy that was a, a phenom, you know, talk about where you're at in your career and, and, you know, how you, how you look forward to helping these guys as well. I've been really fortunate with the, with the guys that I've, that I've gotten to play with, you know, um, you know, the Josh Beckett's, uh, John Lackey, the guys that I, that I grew up watching on TV and, uh, I got to learn a lot from them with with just with different things. When something's not working, whether it be a pitch or you're not comfortable with a grip, there's you can always try something else. And that's uh that's what we were talking about. We we're talking about a curveball grip, and then my I throw a one seam, so uh, the two seam wasn't always really comfortable to me. So I I changed my grip to a one seam, and it's been it's been pretty good for me uh, since that point. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's crazy how quick the the game changes and and how fast it goes by because uh, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that I was in that position, but you know it sort of was. So um, no, it's just it's it's neat to to have a have people listen to you and and b being able you being able to help them uh, or try to help them throughout their career. So it's pretty pretty neat turn of events for me. And and you you know again this this off season I think it was probably a little bit weird for everybody in the off season. You had a great year with the Diamondbacks, and then all of a sudden you know free agency has been weird kind of for everybody I think. And you know what was the, the deciding factor in being able to bring you over to Toronto? Uh, I mean, well, my last two off seasons have been pretty weird. It was a uh, you know the one before was a little different because I was coming off an injury that required surgery, and I. Uh, you know, I didn't really pitch that year, so I had to come out and prove my prove that I was healthy and and, and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, this past one, you know, I told I told my my wife, my kids, my agent. I was like, hey, dude, I'm I'm not I'm not doing the whole minor league gig again. Like, I'm not saying I'm too good for it. I'm saying that I'm just I don't need to do it. And I don't have to do it, and it's a it's a grind. So uh, I said, if I didn't get out a big league job, then, you know, I guess that was going to be it. I got my full 10 years of service time in last year. So, you know, that's one, that's one stepping stone that a whole lot of people don't get to, don't get to witness. So, uh, I did that and, you know, Ben Sherrington, I've known him for a while, uh, coming up with the Red Sox and he called me and, you know, we spoke on the phone for a while and, uh, you know, he said that, Obviously, they'd go through a physical, but they'd, they'd like to have me. And and I've pitched in Toronto a lot throughout my career, and I've and I've always had pretty good success there. And it's uh, yeah, it, it brought me here. It was it was crazy how <laughs> leaving the AL East to go somewhere else, and then you know finding your way back here in this division right now with with how good it is. It's uh, it's a little different, but you know it's it's. I think it's going to be a fun year. Clay, you talked about some of the guys who influenced you in your first answer, guys like Beckett. One thing I found interesting is you've talked since about uh, how you've adjusted the way you've pitched and how your experience in Arizona affected that. And the name that keeps coming up is Zach Granke. And Zach Granke is known as one of the most interesting characters in baseball off the field, one of the most interesting pitchers on the field as well. But I want to know how you and him linked up and whether – you have a Zach Granke story because I know a lot of people around baseball do. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Granke, he just, he just, I don't think he really likes talking to people that he doesn't know. And, uh, I'm, I can sort of understand that too. I'm not a, I'm not a huge talker, but, uh, no, I mean, it's, it just, it's a, it's a, it was a different type of feel for me and him, but he, you know, we played golf. I think that's how, that's how we started conversation, and uh, and then once once we started pitching and, and all that stuff, we you know we were basically trying. I was doing the same thing as him with the same stuff, but he was still striking out you know ten guys a game. So that's that's when I started looking at at his at his mechanics and and what he does. But what he does really well is, is he prepares really, really well and. Dan Heron is over there right now, and that's who. He's the guy that basically makes our scouting reports that are 
really individualized for each pitcher. And so I just started, I really started looking deep into that and seeing what, what Grant did. And, you know, he, he threw to a lot of the hitters weaknesses a lot more than, than I ever really thought about. And that's uh, regardless of what pitch he was throwing, it doesn't mean it was necessarily his best pitch, but, you know, he started throwing that, 64 mile an hour curveball that got the guys off of 89, you know, so it was a, it, it was something that, that really jumped out at me. And, you know, once I started buying into to what I was trying to do, you know, uh, I had, I had some really good success with it. So that's, um, that's what I'm going to still try to do this year. Something that JP mentioned was watching you talking to Trent Thornton on the bench and giving him some of your wisdom. Now you've mentioned that being about the curveball. I had another moment in that broadcast where you kind of became an accidental star, which was when Thomas Pannone threw that immaculate inning and you're kind of jumping around uh, in the dugout and you're kind of one of the first guys to embrace that moment. I was just wondering what was going through your head, whether a guy like you you know, has a bit more of an appreciation for that kind of history and whether and what kind of thing you said to him when he came back in. Yeah, I mean, I just know, I know that that doesn't doesn't happen very often. I I was actually fortunate enough to throw one in Baltimore. I can't remember what year it was, but I I didn't even know that I did it uh, until after the game. Some of the media people, they they said it to me. So, no, I I knew once (laughs) after the first two hitters, I knew they, they went through six pitches, and I'm I'm looking around in the dugout, and everybody's just watching the game. I'm like, oh my god, dude! I'm wondering if I'm the only person that that realizes what's going on here. And after he threw the second pitch, I sort of stood up in that last at bat. I stood up, and and Sanchez looked at me, and I, and I smiled at him. I was like, wow, it's sick. And then you know, obviously struck him out. And yeah, I just I just know how. I think throwing a no hitter is probably. You'll see that more times than than an impeccable inning. So it was it was pretty neat to watch. Well, speaking of no hitters, and obviously you have a career no hitter against me, but um, when you threw to that no hitter, right? That's something that's I think it's it's one of the coolest things. I've been behind the plate for eight and two thirds of one with with Darvish, but when you were warming up, did you know that day that you were that you had something special? Some guys have bar- terrible bullpens, and like when did you know? That you your stuff was really really on, or did you know at any point in that game, like, dude, this is a possibility. Like, what are stories from that game? Because I think that's you know one of the most special things of already a storied career that you've had. Yeah, I mean, I actually I did I felt not really good at all in the bullpen. Didn't really have a, a good bullpen. It wasn't a bad one, but you know, but just didn't feel like the ball was was coming out of my hand like it like it was in prior outings, but uh. Yeah, the John Farrell, he was he was our pitching coach that year and he they basically told me give us five or six good innings and and then we'll throw it to the bullpen, you know. And uh I was like, You got it. So after after the sixth inning I come in the dugout and, you know, I'm thinking that they're gonna come take me out of the game and then I look up at the scoreboard and I saw all the zeros and I was like, Oh man. So that's really whenever I when I when I realized it and I guess all I did from there was I just told myself, you know what, I'm not going to shake Veritek off. I'm just going to throw what he puts down so I don't do something stupid. And, uh, yeah, that's 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 all, that's all she wrote after that. 
Clay, JP keeps bringing it up, so we got to do the housekeeping here. On the very first episode of the podcast, we had a thing called JP Trivia. I'd ask him questions about his career, and I asked him, who's the pitcher you faced the most times without ever getting a hit off of him? And you were the answer to that trivia question. I think, if I recall, the number was about 19 times that you faced JP and he never got a hit. So I guess my question here is, why is it so easy uh, to face JP or Sevilla? Uh, well, that was, I don't think it was an easy thing. It was, I think it's more mental for, um, for the most part, because on the other side of the ball, whenever somebody's just, you can't, you throw them in the kitchen sink and you can't get them out. It's the same thing. I think, you know, I just, I always made really good pitches. And then the times that I didn't make good pitches, he didn't swing at them and let them go. So it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of it. I mean, I think everybody's got somebody that, one pitcher and a hitter has had somebody on the other side that that they just felt like they couldn't pitch to or they couldn't hit. But no, he actually did. You did hit the ball hard a couple times, dude. He was just right at people. <laughs> that that actually that actually is is correct. I did. I I was one of those things where I hit balls hard and I hit them right at people, and it was that monkey on my back. Um, and, and even crazier to, to add to this, I don't even know if you remember, you had a rehab start against us in Portland when I was in double A and I was so fired up to face Clay Buckholtz, the major leaguer. And I went again, 0 for two with two punchies to, to against him in double A. So I was like, you know what? It's just not meant to be, but <laughs> listen, I, I'm, you know, we're fired up. Thank you for coming on by the way. Um, obviously oh, no problem. The Blue Jays have have a phenomenal guy. Not, I mean, f- forget what you've done on the mound. Uh, I think that these guys, everyone is going to be better because of you know what you bring to the table. Uh, you've always been a A plus dude, and I know you've been a quiet guy. So I'm thankful that you came on and talked to us. But we'll, uh, we'll we're very thankful, and we'll see you around in Toronto. You got it, boys. No problem, man. Anytime. That was Clay Buckholtz. Very. Uh very even keel guy he's uh he's kind of like a, a justin smoke like interview but in, in a good way extrapolates really smart dude he's got a lot of wisdom let's watch trent thornton's next start see if that curveball is especially nasty and then we'll know there's a clay buckholtz effect yeah no Nick, he is very much like smoke he is another country boy um he is a, a guy that will be wearing boots i imagine and he is just uh, he's a Low back, he's a laid back kind of guy. He'll, you know, he'll drink his beer and and hang out. And he's a person who, again, has had a very, very good career. You've heard him. He got to get over ten years in the major leagues, which is huge for people that that don't know. Ten years in the major leagues means that you're fully vested in your pension, and that is a big, big thing to do. I think I want to say that eight percent of guys that play in major leagues get to reach that ten year mark. So. Even just to get to the big leagues is tough. That's even tougher. So kudos to him. But again, you know, regardless of what they decide to do with him, if he's going to be a guy at the at the All Star break or whatever that they're going to get rid of, I hope that you know these these young guys get to really really pick his brain because again he's done it at the highest level. He's been really really good, and he's also had to reinvent himself. So there's things that they can pull from. And what I thought was cool was to hear him talk about. Uh, you know, how he was able to more pitch towards the weaknesses because as a catcher, a lot of times, you know, earlier, I think before analytics really took into it, into effect, you know, we were always told like, hey, you go against the pitcher's strength or with the pitcher's strengths, no matter if it's strength on strength. And so obviously you see 
you know, later in guys' careers where I think this information works, well, maybe maybe it's not his strength, but it's this guy's weakness so we can exploit it and we have a little bit more information. So I think that's pretty cool. I want to talk about now a guy who's, you know, the opposite of Clay Buckholds, which is a very young guy who throws a million miles an hour as opposed to your crafty veteran working the high 80s. But if the Blue Jays are lucky, maybe he will be a 10-year major leaguer Prospects are difficult to talk about early in the season because the season actually starts later for a lot of these minor league affiliates. And also, you know, you just don't want to overreact to things. But I want to read you a stat line right now, and that's Nate Pearson. Three starts, 12 innings pitched, 0.75 ERA, 17 strikeouts, and one walk at Dunedin. So the Blue Jays have more position player prospects and pitching prospects. Everyone knows this. But that is about as exciting a start to a year as you can imagine for a guy who's had some injury troubles. JP, where do you go from here with this guy? Because I know they're going to be limited innings, but he's also, he could move really quickly. He's almost 23 years old, but on the, on the flip side, he's only pitched 42 pro innings due to injuries and then working him in slowly. So there's going to be a temptation to move this guy quickly, especially if he keeps pitching like this. But then there's that other side of we need to keep this guy healthy at all costs. How do you see that playing out as the year keeps going? Well, I'm going to put my player development hat on here. Well, one thing for me, there is positives, right? Obviously, one, he's been healthy through his first three starts. Obviously, the numbers are eye-popping. The 17-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio I think is really, really awesome. Obviously, for a guy that throws that hard, the one thing, the antagonist in me, right, is going, well, this guy's have thrown, he's had three starts where he's thrown four innings, pretty much. You know, he's averaging out four innings. And so that's not necessarily a good thing uh, because you need to, these guys need to learn how to be stretched out. I know that they're saving him and they're, or they're trying to, to keep him at a certain innings limit or something like that. But I think for me, it, it's just, it's an in be- it's in between, right? Are you going to make this guy a starter? Or are you going to make this guy a reliever? And I think that part of the development is is getting him into that five, six, seven inning kind of things. If he's going to be a starter, if you see him later down the line being a end of the bullpen kind of guy, well then keep him at the end of the bullpen. I just think it's a weird position to be in when you're just when you're that young and you're you don't have a, a role and I know he's starting but he's not going as long as a starter so I would love to see him you know at some point either take that step or go back because if he's a guy who gets hurt easy then maybe the bullpen is is better suited for him but I know value wise if you have a guy that throws 100 miles an hour that's a starter it's pretty good I do think that they're gonna have to move him up quickly and not necessarily to the major leagues but okay dude this guy's dominating high, obviously, not even close. Take him to double A. Like, you don't have to push him up to the major leagues necessarily quick, but but give him that carrot, right? As as anybody, when you're doing anything, if it's work, if it's you know business, whatever it is, when you do well, you want to get you want to get some kind of you know pay that says you're doing well. In baseball, when you do that in the minor leagues, you you can It's when they say, okay, now you can go to double A, now you can go to triple A. Well. He's 23 years old. Push this guy up a little bit. Give him the chance at double A. See how he does. And then all of a sudden he can find himself in triple A. And then once he's in triple A, that's when you can kind of mold him into, okay, are you a starter or are you a reliever? But that's my thing. I think that they have to make a decision. 
The guy put the carrot in front of him, push him up, let him get up, double A. It'll make him happy. It'll it'll give him a sense of, you know, he's almost there. And then see how he handles that. But, you know, it's exciting because he's a guy who obviously has a lot of upside. Anyone who throws 100 miles an hour is pretty special. There's a couple competing factors at play. And you like you said, I think – you have to move him quickly. I mean, we'll see. Maybe he gets blown out in the next two starts and you think he has something to work on. I think it's very likely that he's too good for high A. Then you want to move him quickly. At the same time, innings are concerned because he hasn't thrown many innings. And we want him to reach the big leagues. By the time he reaches the big leagues, I think you want him to be full on without a ton of limits. I know we saw... For example, with Aaron Sanchez, they brought him up. They brought him into the bullpen. And then in 2016, when he really took off as a starter, at the end of that year, they were starting to have some concerns about his durability. I don't think that you want to replicate that model. Although, this is a guy, I bet you, if you put him in the, a major league bullpen tomorrow, there's a decent chance that he would do fine. And so they have to be building him up as a starter because if he was a reliever, I think he'd be moving even faster than this. I'd like to see him in double A, like you said. I could see by the end of this season him being in AAA and then the plan being to bring him up next year if he does well in AAA or to the extent that he's built up. But it is it is very odd to see a prospect who is he's outperforming his kind of innings cap where it's like you want to bring him along slowly because of the durability concerns, but he's performing so well that it's really hard to bring him along slowly. It's hard to justify that. So I think that's where where the Blue Jays are going to have an interesting decision. Well, yeah, it's 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 hard to justify pushing him forward, but what okay, so why can't he throw four innings in double A, right? Like I mean, maybe not pushing his innings or whatever, but give him better competition. I, and when you go to the Fall League, right? He played in the Fall League. When you're in the Fall League, you're not playing high, guys. You're playing double A, triple A and major league hitters, right? So he already did it in the Fall League. If you thought he was good enough to play in the Fall League, well then keep move him up. Give, put him the double A. Here's what I also think, though, as an injury-prone guy, and these are all the things that go into the decisions. What's the weather like in the Northeast right now? Well, it's not good. It's still cold, right? So that's something that that does make a difference with guys that they may keep guys in warmer climates just to make sure that they're in a good situation. They're not out there when it's 30 degrees and they're having the pitch, and that's when injuries can happen. So now, if that's the case, all right, cool. I'm cool with it. But there has to be – I'm sure there's a plan in place and there's a reason why he's there. But at some point you got to move him along and he's a guy who – not necessarily that I think that that has to make the major leagues this year, but he's a guy when the Blue Jays decide, okay, we have all the young guys, right? We have Barucky's back and he's healthy. We have Bo Bichette, he's good. Vladdy's good. Kevin Biggio's around. All these guys, they need to have Nate Pearson waiting in the wings to go, okay – the young guys are there. We're going to go and sign some guys in the offseason to to put around these these young players. Now let's build a winning team. And Nate Pearson, you're boom, you're in the back of our bullpen. Or Nate, Nate Pearson, you're one of our rotation guys. That's where I think that they have to be with Nate Pearson whenever they decide that they're going to make the run or they're going to be that team that goes after it. They need to have him to where they know, okay, this is where he's going to slot in because he's, he's a contributor. A, yeah, he's going to be a part of it. We've talked about this before. The Blue Jays' prospect pool is not uh, very deep in terms of guys who have the potential to be top, top-end starters. He is one of those guys. He's a guy to be very excited about. I think 
the the climate thing is something people don't think of very much, but there very much could be something to that in terms of um, staying away from, you know, like you said, really wet, nasty, cold weather. We know that that can have uh, an effect on people's health in, you know, in terms of, you know, hamstrings and all sorts of things like that. So he's a guy I think it's important to watch. You know, maybe we check back in in July. We'll have a better idea. What's the plan with this guy? Um, but I think he's one of the most one of the most interesting prospect stories to watch as the season carries on. And one of the most interesting stories in baseball right now, interesting in a little bit of a troublesome way, has got to be the Aussie Albies extension. I know that we're a little bit late on this, but you know we record on the day we record. Sometimes things happen in between. But I did want to touch base with you on that because. We've seen a lot of extensions. I think it's clear that guys aren't super keen to go to free agency as much because of what they've seen the last couple of years. But this is the one that I saw and a lot of people around baseball saw and thought, wow, this is very light. So for those of you guys at home who didn't see it, seven years, 35 million, could go up to nine years, 45. And it's for a guy who is already at a very young age, a really, really good player and it's the point where people are calling it exploitative, and I think that that might be a fair characterization. So what was your first impression when you saw this contract, and what do you think about the player accepting this and the eight? I think, to be honest, more importantly, the agent saying that this was all right. Okay, well, f- my first expression, honestly, was Alex Anthopoulos. Listen, Alex Anthopoulos has always been known to be a thorn in the Players Association side because of these deals that he makes. When I was with Toronto, he made a four-year, $20 million deal for Yunel Escobar, and it was a deal where it was $5 million, $5 million, $5 million, $5 million. And as you know, and anyone who knows baseball and follows it, usually you give yourself a raise after every season, right? You know, that's what arbitration is. You go to arbitration, you know, you have one year at a million, the next year you're at three, the next year you're at six. You know, that's... That's just the way it works. Well, this guy didn't put any kind of of uh, raises in his in his contract. Players Association was really were really upset about it, but it's the players' decision. Alex Anthopoulos is really really good at doing that with players. He can get these guys. I'm sure he sits them down. The way he talks to them, however it may be, he gets these guy guys to sign very team friendly deals, which affects. A lot of players, which is why you saw the outrage of different players, because as the player association preaches to all of us when we get into it is, hey, push the needle forward, push it for the next person. There's a lot of people that pushed it for yourself to get to the where the the average salary is higher and the average, you know, whatever you make has gone up because of the people that did it before you. So don't hurt the next people. Don't be selfish and hurt the people that are going to be affected by your decision. That being said, I've heard about Aubie's background and I've heard Ozzy, you know, came from nothing in Curacao, right? This guy didn't come from anything. And if you tell somebody in Curacao that, dude, you can have $45 million, whatever the max of this contract is, let's say 35 guaranteed, you can have $35 million. Are you going to turn it down? Probably not, right? And that's the tough part is these G- these GMs and, and they know where these guys come from and that is life-changing money. That's, that's a wealth for this family that's going to help generations, right? So it's tough to say 
And I know players are doing it because they're upset, and I, I get it. But I also understand on Alpi's side is if you come up from nothing and they throw $35 million carrot in the front of your face, for anybody to say that they wouldn't take it, I think it's tough to say. And I and I and you don't know his family's situation. You don't know where they're at, this and that. And so all I know is that that young man has set himself up for quite some time, especially if he's smart with it. He set himself up for quite some time. So I think it's it's a really tough situation because you look at it as from the player association hat, that's that's horse crap. You just drove the market down. If I'm a player, I'm pissed off because I'm going, dude, you took this crap deal. And now when we have a comp, they're going to say, well, you Aussie put better numbers than you did and he didn't get that money or whatever it may be. So that pisses me off. And then on the other side, you put on Ozzy's hat and it goes, dude, his family's probably bent over hysterically crying because now they're in a position to live this this life. So it's just a weird, weird situation. Um, everybody's going to comment at, on it. But at the end of the day, it is the player's decision. And if he feels like that's all he needed to be comfortable and, and be fine for the, his his career – then hey man, it's tough to tell. It's tough to tell anybody that that's crap for taking the thirty-five million dollar deal. Listen, I'm not going to blame Ozzy Albies, not for one second. Like you said, the guy had a background. He didn't come from a lot. He didn't. He wasn't a guy who got one of those huge signing bonuses. And I'm I'm sure that he has a lot of people in his life that he wants to take care of. So there's no blame for me that's going to go to Ozzy Albies. What I'm thinking is. The agent's job in this scenario is to educate the players on what they possibly can make. And there have been estimates, and again, it's based on projections. He, his track record isn't that long, yada, yada, yada. But this is a very good player. And the estimates have been that he's leaving potentially something in the range of maybe $200 million on the table. That's if his career goes well. And so we know that this is a safety net, yada, yada, yada. But the fact of the matter is he's leaving just buckets, buckets and buckets of money on the table. And that affects, like you said, the MOBPA, but also he could have a lot more. And so what I'm wondering is, what is his agent thinking? Because a lot of people are saying maybe there's an ulterior motive here. The agent feels like he's going he's gonna to leave them as a client, so they want to cash in now or whatever it is. I don't want to engage in too much conspiracy theory stuff with that. I think at the very least, though, the agent needs to really educate the player about what his possibilities are because I'm telling you right now as someone with no experience and uh, no law degree and sometimes questionable math skills that I could have negotiated a better contract for Ozzy Albies. No, no doubt. And you know what? Here's at the end of the day. You don't – man, listen. I was with CA when I played – they were they were a good agency, right? Boris, good agency. There's a lot of good agencies that are out there that understand how to push the market. They understand. They respect it. That's why to be an agent, you have to be, um, what do you call this? You have to be okayed by the MLB Players Association, right? So you have to be. To you can't just you can't just go. Hey, I'm Nick. I want to be an agent for the major leagues. It just doesn't happen, right? The major, the MLBPA has to okay it. All these different things have to go in. So if the MLBPA is pissed off about it, they have to do a better job of, of figuring out who these, these agents are. And at the end of the day, also, agents are, uh, let's say, dirt balls 
at at some points, right? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest with it. And some some agents, because a lot of these professional agents are good, but a lot of them are dirt balls. And you're right. They say this person, I don't know whose agent may be, but some agents will go, Yeah, I'm gonna take a crap deal because I'm getting four percent of that, right? So right now, too. It's I'm getting four percent of that money this second that when the deal's signed. Yes. So now you go and this guy signs a thirty-five million dollars times four percent is one point four million dollars. So this agent just made one point four million dollars on his contract, which that's not to say what he's gonna make off of his endorsement deals and all these different things. So some of these agents that might be the only money they get. So then they're okay with doing that crap. But again, that's where for me, yeah, can you blame the agent, right? Is the agent this guy who knows what what his background is, whatever, but the agent's trying to get I mean, his yeah, too. You, yeah, you, yeah, you can blame no, no, the no, agent you, because the agent didn't he, do his yeah, job. He's 100%, but what I'm saying is at that point, it's it's who it's the company you keep, right? If I had CAA, if Albies had CAA, there ain't a chance in hell he's signing that deal. He had Boris, not a chance in hell he's signing that deal. But if he has some mom and pop agent that doesn't have the, the 10 clients at $200 million, he has Ozzy Albies and this is all he's going off of. That's why he does a shit deal like that. So that's what, for me, again, it sucks. It sucks because I've read that his trajectory could have been the $280 million kind of player, which for me is crazy that you take $35 million and you can be in that, that trajectory. But again, you make the, you make the decision with what you know at the time, right? And so what happens if this guy gets hurt tomorrow and then, God forbid... Right, you hope you has a long career, but if he gets hurt tomorrow, he's making all of the every bit of thirty five million dollars. Right, so it's a very tough position to be in. And again, as I've heard, how it goes down in some of these these negotiations is they sit you down and they they say, "Hey, look, man, this is a whole lot of money thirty five million dollars. Look at how much this money is to play a game." And they just they just like psychologically mess with you. And I know a player who had them do that to him and he started at $13 million and they told him, all right, that's it. This is all we're going to give you 13 million. Are you sure you're going to pass this up? And he ended up signing for $35 million, right? So that, that, that's just the way these negotiations, you know, went. And, you know, I don't think that Albies called their bluff and the agent didn't call their bluff. So is it a shit deal? Yeah, it sucks, but the guy's got $35 million and he knows that maybe at some point they'll they'll be able to hopefully at some point, you know, re- revisit this contract and maybe make some adjustments to it. Yeah, it could actually be one of the ones that's a candidate to have that treatment, which is very rare in baseball. It's something that happens in football more, but Salvador Perez had that happen where he signed with the Royals for a deal that was just kind of criminal and they almost... And they kind of doubled back on it and they decided to reward him a little bit for his service and give him a better deal. So Longoria too. Longoria too, the same thing. I'd love to see that happen with this scenario. Based on the brief research, baseball reference, Ozzy Albee's agents is something called Sports Meter. Uh, they tweet out a lot of Derek Dietrich highlights. Uh, Sports Meter, you're trash, you're on notice. Um, figure it out. Yeah, I bet you Players Association is, is going Sports Meter, uh, you're please come to the principal's office because you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When the next round of certifications or recertifications happen, they should be revisiting that for sure. Anyway, let's finish it off 
with a would you rather as we always do this one is weird it is my own i haven't i've workshopped it a little bit i still don't know if it's a good dilemma or not but whatever i like to do my own as opposed to stealing them from the internet so would you rather have to watch 15 minutes of commercials before you eat anything so if you sit down to eat you're gonna like i guess someone's gonna put a tablet in front of you You gotta watch like 15 straight minutes of commercials or you have to go through customs before you go to sleep every night so there's like a customs booth outside your bedroom and the guy's going to ask you a bunch of questions. Sometimes it's going to be pretty sw- swift. You're going to get through no problem, but you know how customs goes. There could be some really annoying incidents. I mean, I've been through it many times and that's enough for me to say that I'd rather watch the 15 minutes of commercials before I eat. And I don't care um, what kind of commercials they are, but I've been through enough. I literally go to the customs booth and there's times where I'm like, they start just asking me crazy questions. And in my head, I'm like, man, maybe I am doing something wrong. Like they, it almost like they scare <laughs> yeah, you. They, they crawl inside your head. Yeah. It's customs like, guys. it's like, what are you here for? A charity event. Whoa. What do you mean a charity event? Well, a, a charity <laughs> event. And then they just keep on. You're like, dude, do you have any, do you have anything that you shouldn't be bringing into the country? And I'm like, uh, no. Oh, well, so what do you do for a living? Well, I, I, I do stuff with Yahoo Sports Canada. I'm an ambassador for the team. What? Why for the team? Oh man, I don't know. I don't know. And you get (laughs) you just get so nervous that you're like, dude, I I didn't do anything wrong. Like just let me come in. So I don't want to have to go through that that kind of mental stress um, to go to bed every night because you're supposed to be just calming down. So I would 100% want to watch the uh, commercials before I eat. What about you? I. I had to I was, I touch on a couple of custom stores and they've had some bad customer experience, but normally I feel like I get through probably in less than 15 minutes. So if I had to do that, as a, I'd probably do that as opposed to the commercial. I know there's stress there. So for example, uh, when I was 11, I went on with my parents, my first big holiday, which was to Italy. And I was the age finally where my parents tell me like, okay, the customs person, when we go through might ask you a question as well. And I was to, at that age, I was incredibly shy and I was really freaked out about the idea that this custom person was going to ask me a question. So when we got through customs, they were, you know, whatever question, right, blah, blah, blah. And then the custom person just leans over and says, uh, are these your parents? And I just freak out. And I said, no, because it was just like the first thing that came to my head was just and then there's a whole thing because now it looks like I'm being kidnapped by these two people. And they, like, there's a whole scuffle going on, like, what, they're not your parents? And I'm like, no, 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 they are my parents. Like, I'm just nervous. I freaked out. And there's a whole thing. That was, so that was my first real customer experience. So you'd think I wouldn't do it, but I've gotten a lot more comfortable with it uh, over time. I've traveled a lot. I know when I did a big European trip with my uh, best friend way back in the day, like, I would be like, Rob, you're not talking to customs. Like, just stand behind me like I'm going to do it because, I don't know, I think I, I've, I've figured it out. I've got, a, I've got enough of the friendliness, but without the trying to joke with them where they get suspicious, you just, you just got to find the right lane. So I'm, I'm comfortable with customs. I think I'll take it before I go to bed. I, there are probably some awkward scenarios, but man, 15 minutes of commercials is a lot. Like when you watch commercials and you have a four-minute commercial break, you're already rolling your eyes. 15 minutes, three times a day, ugh. Yeah, no, I'm I'm ADD enough that I'll zone out for those 15 minutes and then I'll lock it in to eat. So I'm all good. <laughs> all right. 
Uh, well, this has been another episode of Digging In with JPR and Sevia. We uh, appreciate you guys listening. We encourage you to subscribe, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us reviews. We love reviews, good reviews, bad reviews. We've been fortunate so far. we got a pretty good ratio out there. But, you know, if you got to be honest, uh, we'll live with the consequences. Be good. See you soon. <laughs>